and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. Public opinion polling impacts our democracy, and our democracy, of course, impacts our health. The role the polls play in our democracy has become more complex. They aren't always regarded or intended simply as snapshots of public opinion. Many on the right in this country and beyond believe that their supporters are undercounted in polls, and moreover, expectations and media narratives are shaped by polling. And not just the accurate polls, but the inaccurate ones as well. We're going to get into these topics and more with a pollster who is pretty darn accurate, Chris Keating of Keating Research. Chris, for example, released a poll in early October of this year showing that Lauren Boebert, the attention-grabbing member of Congress from Colorado, was in a statistical tie with challenger Adam Frisch, even while the polling aggregation site 538 gave Boebert a 98% chance of victory. It turned out that Keating was much closer to the mark as Bober ended up squeaking by with less than two-tenths of one percent in the election. You should listen to this guy. In fact, here's your chance now. Chris Keating, welcome. Thank you for having me. We're big fans of yours over here at Healthier Colorado. And as you know, obviously, but to share with others here, we at Healthier Colorado uh, commissioned your firm um, in partnership with a right-leaning firm called Magellan to conduct a statewide poll of likely voters in the 2022 election. It was in the field mid-September, I think specifically the 18th to the 26th. And the results included um, having Senator Michael Bennett over challenger Joe O'Day by 10 points. And then Bennett in the election ended up winning by 13 points, which is within the margin of error on that poll, which was about 3%. So good on you on that one. And then you also had Governor Polis over challenger Heidi Ganahl by 17 points. And Polis ended up winning by 18 points. Again, pretty good. And I think this is notable for its accuracy, especially in the context of you know, there were a couple other polls out there, one by the Trafalgar Group, another by the Terrence Group that had these races much tighter uh, and they ended up being way off. Uh, so my question for you is, what are you doing right and what are they doing wrong? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for uh, Healthier Colorado for giving us the opportunity to work on that poll. Without you, without our clients, we wouldn't we wouldn't even have a the chance to work on these types of polls. Also, as you mentioned, Magellan Strategies, they have an excellent team, David and Courtney, uh, that uh, worked with us on this. So I don't want to I don't want to take all the credit for for having a poll that was close to uh to what the numbers were. And, and you know, uh, I don't I don't know. There weren't a lot of people that had numbers that were as high as they ended up being. Uh so that's kind of uh uh, a testament to what's going on here in Colorado. I would also say that uh, I've been polling in Colorado for 27 years. So I think I have, you know, kind of a deeper understanding of the Colorado voter. And uh, I think importantly, also, I, I love polling. And every time I get a new set of data, it's like, it's like Christmas morning. I, you know, I had this fascinating set of data that no one else has. 
And, uh, and, and I just love that. I uh, love everything about it. I also, uh, I think the truth is I have a secret when it comes to polling in Colorado. Let's hear it. When it, when it comes to polling in Colorado, uh, it's, it comes down to unaffiliated voters. And by that, I mean, talking to actual voters who are registered as unaffiliated, not someone who says they're an independent or someone who says that they're unaffiliated in terms of registration. To be successful, you have to talk to actual unaffiliated voters, and that's what I've been doing for 27 years. Uh, And then you have to make sure these unaffiliated voters, that they represent uh, likely on a, voters who are unaffiliated in, in the election, uh, based on, you know, gender and age and ethnicity and, and regionally around the state. So I think it's quite simple, uh, what you need to do to be successful, um, uh, polling in Colorado, but, you know, it's also not something that I think everyone does. They, we talk about independence, uh, and having a certain percentage of, of independents or unaffiliated voters, but you really have to do your due diligence. And, and I think unaffiliated voters are becoming a larger and larger share of the total number of voters in Colorado. It's now up to 40% in this election, more than 45% of all registered voters are unaffiliated. So it's, I think it's even more important to properly survey these unaffiliated voters. Uh, and that's why you can see these large differences. I, I also will say there are some other polling firms like Global Strategies, like YouGov, that work close as well. So, so I think we're in good company. So, I, I, you know, I'm happy to give a shout out to those companies. And uh, I think, you know, as for your second part, Jake, this, uh, the, you know, the Trafalgar Group, uh, they put out a poll that had uh, bended up by two points. And uh, it wasn't close. I do think that there are companies that put out polls across competitive races in order to create a narrative. Yeah. Uh, rather than actually trying to uh, figure out what, what the actual result is going to be. In Arizona, for example, uh, Trafalgar had Masters up by two points and Kelly won by five. They, in Pennsylvania, they had Oz up by by I believe it was two points as well, and Fetterman won by five. They had in, in Nevada, they had Laxalt up by four, Cortez Masto one by one. Georgia, they had Walker up by three, Warnock one by one. That one's going to a runoff, but he still won by one point. So I think you can see the general trend with the Trafalgar group. I think the narrative they want to create is that Republicans are winning, or at least that Republicans are closing the gap. You know, in September and October, and I, you know, that's not actually the only thing that the narrative that they're trying to create. They're trying to say that if Republicans win, that they were the ones who got it correct, while everyone else was wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that may have worked in 2016, uh, but obviously didn't work for them in this cycle. So I think there's a saying that something like. A stopped watch is correct two times a day. Right. So, I mean, if, if Republicans win, then they're going to be correct and they're going to take all the credit. That's what they did in 2016. In 2022, it didn't exactly work for them. 
Well, I think that 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 strategy of like flooding the zone with a bunch of polls that show a certain narrative that you want to get out there that, you know, Republicans are up or, or more competitive than they ended up being in the election. It seems like it worked in part, at least in some states, because the narrative coming out of Nevada was that, you know, Cortez Massa was was toast and you cited some other states as well. And then even here in Colorado, there were there was a lot of press attention on the possibility of a Michael Bennett loss, even though your poll, the GSG poll, other polls showed a, a really healthy lead. And even after Bennett won, there was a New York Times headline that read Bennett wins a third term in a uh, third Senate term in Colorado in a tougher than expected fight. But again, he won by 13 points, which was double his margin in 2016, uh, which is only six points. So it seems like, uh, is that strategy working or why, what, what accounts for this sort of narrative here in Colorado and potentially elsewhere? You know, I think that, I think there's a couple of things. One is you have these uh, polling aggregation sites like 538 with Nate Silver, uh, Real Clear Politics used to do it, New York Times even does it. And uh, so, so there's an opportunity to do a poll, a so-called poll and get it into these sites and change the probability that someone might win mm -hmm. and to try to change the narrative. I also think that, uh, uh, and, and polls, I mean, polls aren't, to put a finer point, polls aren't really designed to be aggregated and used in that fashion. They are designed for a single race, a single occurrence uh, to get a better understanding of, of how, how voters feel. I also think that uh, the way that the media works today, uh, if you say that a race is close, if you if you talk about things tightening or the possibility of Bennett losing, you get more clicks yeah. uh, and and you get more attention versus if you were to just say, you know, most of the polls, all the polls are showing that Michael Bennett is winning. There's not a single poll that was ever released that had Michael Bennett uh, losing and most winning that weren't even within the margin of error. So the race was done. The race was baked a long time ago. So, but if you, if you do a story like that, you're not going to get too many clicks whatsoever. I've been working with pollsters like you for a long time. And I've noticed that really the, the contact methodology has really changed um, over the course of, say, the last 10, 20 years. Um, could you walk us through um, the differences between how respondents are contacted now, typically, versus how they were 10 years ago? So 10 years ago, essentially, uh, started my company 12 years ago. And... Uh, like I said, I've been working in polling for a long time. But 10 years ago, we were mainly doing live interview surveys. And back then, uh, when I first formed my company, we were, you know, we were kind of on the cutting edge, so-called, of primarily calling cell phones with live interviewers. So we we were mostly doing, you know, 70% of our interviewers were on cell phones. Uh, only like 30% on landline where, where, you know, a lot of companies were only calling landlines or they had a very large proportion on landlines uh, because it's, it's, uh, it's more, it was, you know, it was more expensive to call cell phones. It was harder. Uh, there were some companies that were doing internet polling 
uh, online surveys. There were other companies that were doing what are known as IDR polls or auto dialing. That was more popular back then. Um, and and we still had the same, you know, same issues when I was first uh, working on John Hickenlooper's campaign for governor. We had a lot of polls that show him that showed him leading. And then other polls came out that showed a, a really tight race uh, within, you know, certainly tied or within the margin of error and that, you know, he may or may not win and things like that. And he ended up winning by a large margin. But today, today it's much different. We do, uh, we do all kinds of poll. We do any type of poll that you want. We do online polls with a panel. We do text to online polling, uh, where we send you a text uh, with a link uh, to your phone, and then you you click on that and do and do the poll. Or we do we also do good old fashioned live interviewer polling, which is mostly ninety percent of that is at least is uh, conducted on a cell phone. Uh, and in addition to that, so we'll do we'll do a different type of poll depending on what we think is the best for our client. We also do like hybrid more a lot more hybrid polls where. You know, a certain proportion will be done on the phone or on a panel, and then another proportion might be done on text or online, like the poll that we did for you, which was done half online with a panel, and a half uh, was conducted text or online. Uh, so none of that survey was conducted on phone, and it obviously worked out. So I think it's I think it's a, a critically important today. They give voters different options, different opportunities to complete the interview. You know, it's like, uh, you know, like if young people may be more likely to respond to text. They don't they don't answer their phones anymore. Uh, I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm young. I'm saying I don't answer my phone anymore. Young at heart. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of people, but people do answer their phones. Uh, so, uh you know, some people like to have a good old fashioned phone call and complete the survey that way. So. I think at the end of the day, though, it really comes down to like where we started from is you have to be talking to these actual unaffiliated voters. And it doesn't really matter if it's through a text or through a panel or uh, a YouGov survey or, you know, whatever the case may be uh, or on the phone. You, you just you just you just need to be talking to actual voters. You know, one of the challenges that's been cited recently um, is a version of the Heisenberg principle. Stay with me here. So Werner Heisenberg, in addition to being Walter White's alter ego on Breaking Bad, was a physicist who observed that when you try to measure a subatomic particle, the act of measurement itself caused the particle in question to move. So if you apply this uh, to polling, we have the same problem of measurement. That is when people are contacted to take a poll interview, we're only by definition getting the people who want to be polled, which affects the overall measurement. And people talked a lot about this in um, 2016 as a reason for undercounting Trump support. Is this for real or, or, or is, and if so, what do we do about it? I do think it is a real problem uh in 2016 and possibly in 20 a little bit in 2020 the trump voters weren't counted and then there was kind of a surprise that he won some states 
that it wasn't expected. Uh, I think I think the the issue that we're seeing is that you know let's call it a Trump voter. Uh, they don't necessarily trust elections. Uh, they don't. They also probably don't trust polls that are designed to replicate an election. Uh, so they're they're less likely. They may be less likely to take a poll. Uh, and so, if you don't include these these Trump voters, uh, and they don't appear in your in your results, uh, that uh, you know that that could make uh, your results incorrect. I think that uh, that's why you want to give people uh, different types of op- options and opportunities uh, to to actually take a poll. Um, and uh, I think that. I think that at the end of the day, though, it it really uh, only seems to have made a difference in the elections where Trump was on the ballot in 2016 and 2020. We did not see that in this election. In fact, we see almost the opposite, where you're trying to get all of these Trump, not all of them, or get these Trump voters into your poll, and then they may not have actually voted as much in this election, you know, be it, uh, you know, a more conservative, unaffiliated voter or Republicans themselves. Uh, and then you see results in, in averages on polling. And I hate to talk about averages where uh, it was a lot closer, for example, in Arizona or in Pennsylvania or, or even in Colorado than it actually ended up being uh, for uh for the Democratic candidates, uh, so it, it's just the kind of thing where, you know, you can you can try to do one thing and 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 then if those voters don't show up, then uh, then then you may have overcompensated the the other way. I think. Uh, whereas if they do in twenty twenty four, no, we just saw that Trump uh, declared that he's running for president. So in twenty twenty four, it's possible, you know, unless he doesn't win the prime, unless he loses the primary, he could be on the ballot in twenty twenty four, and then and then the the Trump voters uh, may come may come out and vote again. Let's talk about two of my favorite states, uh, Colorado and Michigan. I was looking at the results there. Uh, in both those states, there were Democratic governors who did very well. Um, in the case of Michigan, I think Governor Whitmer arguably overperformed expectations. And in both these states, Democrats won big down the ballot as well. Is there a coattails effect in both these cases? In the case of Governor Polis here in Colorado and Governor Whitmer in Michigan? And if so, how can you tell? Like, is that measurable? Uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, I, I don't know if it's measurable or not. I do think that there there is a coattail effect when you have a strong candidate like Jared Polis. And, and, and obviously, in this case, Michael Bennett, who was the, actually the one at the top of the ticket, and then everybody down the ballot doing well. I think here in Colorado, we saw strong results down the ballot for Secretary of State Jenna Griswold uh, winning and Attorney General Phil Weiser uh, Dave Young, our treasurer, they all won by larger margins than they won in 2018. And just, and, and I worked on all three of those campaigns, uh, just for the record. But uh, uh, we do have to give, I think we do have to give these candidates uh, some credit, I think, for running great campaigns. And also, I think Colorado voters uh, some credit for not 
buying what the Republican Party and Donald Trump was selling. And I think that begins with the election denying the January 6th attack on the Capitol and and continued through the Dobbs decision and the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I think I think when you look at the Republican Party and as voters were were coming down the ballot, they were seeing good candidates and and they were not buying uh, Republican Party. So they were going to see strong results. In fact, uh, I don't know if you know this, Jake, but this is the first time in Colorado, uh, going all the way back to 1900, uh, when the party that controlled the governor, uh, secretary of state, treasurer, attorney general, actually uh, won again. So they were all reelected. This is the first time that that has happened for any party. Uh, so in 2018 was the first time Democrats won, going back to all those uh, offices and going back to 1948. But this is the first time in the history that they've actually been, all of them have been reelected. So is this going to be like the most boring state on the map politically in 2024? I mean, I mean, it seems like we're in this, you know, aside from some fundraisers, we're going to be like a presidential flyover again. I, you can't say this is a swing state. And with these results, you know, it looks like uh, the Democrats have done pretty well for themselves having these historic victories. What does 24 look like in Colorado? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of sad. I, you know, I think, uh, I think it is, I think for 2024, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be a presidential flyover. I think the Democrat, you know, if, if Biden decides he's going to run again, he'll win Colorado, no, no matter who I think the Republican candidate is, and, and it'll just be a flyover for everyone. Um, so that's kind of, it's kind of too bad, but it's also, I think, great to have been part of all that for the, for the, you know, the past quarter century to get, to get to this point. I do think that, uh, one thing that I see uh, in the upcoming elections, uh, 2024, is we re- we saw pr- progressive issues do really well on the ballot as well. So I think that's an area where, you know, you can think about Colorado becoming this progressive state. Uh, I think one example, a couple examples that we worked on this cycle is, is uh, Proposition FF. Mm-hmm. That's uh, you know a tax increase to provide free healthy meals to all kids. I think it's just a really wonderful thing. I think voters understood that was a wonderful thing, and and it was the first uh, first income tax increase to be passed in Colorado in the in the Tabor era. You know it only applies to those I think making over three hundred thousand dollars, but still, mm-hmm. you know, that was the first increase, and it went to a really good cause. And the second thing is Proposition One Two Three. We know that housing is a huge issue in Colorado, and this is gonna allocate over $100 million, maybe I think $140 million per year in state revenues to provide more affordable housing. So that's another progressive issue that voters, uh, uh, I think at the end of the day, that one was uh, almost at 52% saying that vote yes, uh, voting yes on that, that one. Um, so this is also, I think, the first time that Colorado voters approved uh, Tabor money for uh, a specific use. And uh, so I think one thing I think is is that 
as we look towards 2024, I think we got to give Colorado voters a lot of credit uh, for for doing things that make sense for Colorado. You know, when you're talking about housing being an issue and give, putting all that money towards providing more affordable housing or getting these meals or making sure that we have uh, an attorney general uh, that's going to stand up, protect our rights, and a secretary of state uh, that is uh gonna make sure that our that we have the right to vote uh i think uh you have to applaud the voters and that's uh i think we we can feel i think comfortable putting our trust in them to make the right decision that's what that's i think what i learned from the most from this election well it's clear that the democrats overcame some historical headwinds here nationwide in terms of you know the party in, in power in the white house typically does uh, poorly um, in the midterm. And as a post-mortem on the results, what would you say was the driving factor here? I mean, it wasn't just those historical trends, there was also the economy too. Inflation, as you already know from your surveys, is weighing uh, heavily uh, upon families here in Colorado and beyond. So we had uh, Democrats had two things going against them. Um, but then you had this atmosphere in which there was also these, this, this election denialism. You um, already mentioned uh, the overturning of Roe. How would you order these reasons why Democrats were able to buck these trends? Yeah, I would say uh, one, I think one interesting thing that in the polling is, is that you, you look at the undecided voters and I think undecided voters were conflicted in terms of inflation being, uh, you know, the highest that anyone can remember, uh, and, uh, and on one hand, and, and, uh, on the other hand, you had, uh, this, this overturning of Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision. I think that was the other, uh, big issue. And a lot of these, uh, undecided voters were, uh, either, uh, younger unaffiliated voters, or unaffiliated women, and and they were going strongly strongly for the Democratic candidate overall among those groups. But then they also represented a large portion of the undecided. And the question was, what what were they going to do? And I think uh, I think ultimately when it came down to deciding between those two things that we talked about, they went with the Democrats. Uh, the vast majority of undecided, and that's why the 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 result the results for Democrats pushed up so high, you know, into double digits, was because these undecided undecided voters at the end of the day uh, uh, made their decision, I believe, based on the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and they, and they went for the Democrat. Um, in all the polling for any candidate. Uh, that we did, we always saw that uh, the women's rights and the abortion issue was the top concern uh, about Republicans. And, you know, you saw that in the advertising. And I think there was, you know, there was this idea in October when, when we saw, you know, this tightening of polls that may have been generated by uh, the pollsters that we were talking about, we saw this idea that maybe uh, the women's rights and Roe v. Wade wasn't uh, wasn't going to be a big issue. But I think, as it turns out, 
it it really was the big issue of the campaign and helped in in Democrats ultimately win across all of these uh, in competitive Senate uh, races that that we thought, uh, well, maybe we could win a few of those. Uh, maybe we could hold the Senate, but now it appears uh, Democrats won them all. And looking ahead to 24, we're already, it's already time to start speculating about 24, right? What did you learn in this election that should be applied to the next one? I think the most important thing is that we should trust voters and and believe in voters and believe that they are going to uh, do the research on the candidates and on the issues and on the ballot question and uh, make the decision, I believe, that is in the best interest of Colorado. I think it really is. Uh, to me, that is, I think, the most uh, compelling uh, piece of it. And I think if, if you believe in Colorado like I do, as much as I do, I, I think it's a, it's a really great song. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Keep up the awesome work. Thank you for having me. Let's do this again. Thanks for listening. Rate and subscribe pretty please. I'll catch you next time.